0: Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow patriots and forgotten American taxpayers to the one and only Conservative Review podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, in the house on Tuesday, February 4th. Busy, busy day. Fallout from Iowa caucus's State of the Union address. Where do we go from here? Impeachment finally winding up. Opportunities abound. You guys are forgotten no longer because you are listening to the only source of independent conservative talk that actually looks out independently for the forgotten American taxpayer, for our nation's sovereignty, security, civil society, to look beyond the soap opera. Now, I could get on this show, come before you today, like every other host, and repeat the same talking points because... Most of my colleagues in this business wake up every day without an agenda only with talking points. Oh, look at the Democrats. Oh, they messed up in Iowa. How how embarrassing. They can't even run a, a caucus. Ha, ha, ha. And not that it's not true, but the bigger question is, what do we do with that? Where do we go from there? How does Trump capitalize on their plunder? And how do conservatives utilize Trump's presidency to actually accomplish his campaign promises in the second term where we failed in the first term? That should be the question we are all asking. Not the soap opera as an end to itself, but if you're going to harness it, use it as a means to talk about something substantive. If nothing else, I'm actually happy tonight's the State of the Union. I used to hate State of the Unions because I think it's just the dumbest thing, the standing and clapping. And whoever's president is just antiquated, should, be, should go back to Thomas Jefferson's days where they just faxed it in, sent it in, in writing. Uh, but in this era, I actually relish the moment where, at least for a half a day's news cycle, we're going to talk about substantive policy issues which Trump has typically been pretty good on them. And even the media over the years has said his State of the Union addresses are very good. The key for him is how to make those policy suggestions he he makes and the principles behind them he offers a reality in his second term. That is my goal. And as we noted, in order to do that, you need to have better executive policies, better personnel, better legislative focus on what you should demand Republicans introduce, what they should do on budget bills, use the veto threat, use the bully pulpit more effectively, and yes, get involved in Republican primaries. For all the talk of Democrat primaries, we should care more about Republican primaries, right? I mean, I think this is part of the problem with social media i got into this business when the internet was already very prominent in politics but you didn't really have social media and if you were if you did this for a living as a conservative so you had to have some sort of agenda that you woke up every day and focused on what social media has done is it's created a self-fulfilling prophecy this circuitous cycle of soap opera where everyone's just reactive oh I need my talking points for the day. I need to get ratings for my show. I need to get clicks for my website. So it's all about, ha, 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 the Democrats in Iowa today. I'm going to focus on that. So no one's going to want to you know, put out good content like we have today on crime and gangs and drugs and homelessness and illegal immigration and sanctuary cities, which we're going to talk about today, all tying together. But really, People care about that stuff a lot more than the abstract stuff, the political stuff, the impeachment stuff that nobody understands. The future of your communities, your schools, with illegal immigration, drugs, gangs, 70 languages coming into your school district, homelessness, the drug cartels, the broken refugee program, endless migration from the Middle East. We're going to tie this all together. That's the message Trump needs to push in a State of the Union address. That's the message Trump needs to push relentlessly on the campaign trail. But that is also the message the president needs to actually implement after the election if he takes over Congress. To me, the biggest takeaway from what's going on is this. Yes, Democrats are incompetent. Yes, they're boobs. Yes, they're anarchists. They're communists. They're pathetic. And it's still most likely they're going to nominate someone like Bernie Sanders. But rather than dancing in the end zone, ha, 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 the Democrats look pathetic. Well, the Democrats are actually pretty efficient in what they do. They failed with this app that they use to tabulate the results, but genuinely and generally, they are actually pretty successful in what they do. Just this week, another Republican Minnesota county voted... ...to accept refugees. I was just speaking yesterday with a friend of mine who is a U.S. attorney... ...in a state in America, federal prosecutor... ...and we we were just lamenting how all these Republican governors are, are weak on crime... ...and they're implementing the Democrat agenda. See, Democrats might be incompetent... ...but they're very competent at getting their agenda... ...and the most effective way of them implementing their agenda is having Republicans implement it for them, thereby shielding them from electoral reprisal, allowing them to have their cake and eat it too. That's really the lesson here from what's going on. Everyone's like, ha ha, Democrats are so weak. Well, why is it that Democrats control roughly half of the states? Now, even the states Republicans control they implement Democrat policies. There's not a single red state in America where you have the statewide elected Republican officials and the leadership in the House and Senate of the legislatures agreeing to conservative principles, no, you don't have that at all. The same failed leaders that you have, McCarthy and McConnell, you have even worse in most state legislatures. Total rhinos. It's because of that that Democrats are, it's 50-50, you know, they have half the states, Republicans have a narrow majority in the Senate, although 90% of them are are liberals. And Democrats have a majority in the House. Now, Republicans have the White House. Trump is president. But it's pretty evenly matched. The question we should be all asking, all be asking, is how is it so evenly matched when Democrats are this radical? And the answer is because Republicans are pathetic themselves and agree with this stuff, and they don't every day bang away on the important issues that will determine the future of our civilization, the safety and security and orientation and culture of our communities and neighborhoods, and expose, accentuate the radicalness of these policies, and harness very specific moments in in current events and what's going on in the news, legislative strategies, and executive policies to create these cultural flashpoints to actually change these policies and provide voters with a bold contrast. That is the the, the lesson from here. You now I've said before that even if Trump wins re-election, it was increasingly unlikely that Republicans would win back the House because you know they just have kind of bad recruitment. There's a lot of Republican seats that are open now, as opposed to Democrat seats. But if they are going to nominate Bernie Sanders, I think there really is a chance there could be a blowout and they could win. But the question we should all be asking is, so what? Then what? Two questions. So what? And then what? How are we going to break this vicious cycle of electing Republicans the same leadership, the same people. And we saw even with Trump as president the first two years, and we get the same results in Congress. So while everyone's focusing on Iowa, I know it's not going to get clicks for a website to talk about a Republican primary in a House seat. But we're going to talk about it anyway because that's something you and I could influence, and it's something that frankly matters a lot more. We had on on Friday... The only major show, minor show, whatever you want to call me, in the conservative movement, to have on Chris Putnam running for Congress in Texas's 12th district against Rhino K. Granger, who is the top House Republican appropriator. She would be the House Appropriations Committee chairman that will write all those budget bills if Republicans win back the House. That's the light at the end of the tunnel. That's what we have to Focus on that's what man that, that 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 is the end result that we have to look forward to. Even after the most auspicious electoral outcome, or do we? Do we have to accept Kay Granger? And the answer is we don't. Most of these candidates typically have no money, but Putnam puts in is putting in his own. He's raised money; he has over five hundred thousand dollars. The Club for Growth is putting in at least a million dollars. So we might not reach someone like. Granger, you know, in parity with her fundraising, that's kind of hard with a Republican like her, but certainly there's going to be enough money to get his name out. He's got a really good chance of winning. Now, in addition to your assignment, as always, to go to iTunes, Conservative Review Podcast, subscribe, leave us a positive five-star rating. You could also go to Chris Putnam's website and donate to his candidacy. But I want you guys to understand what we're up against here. These Republicans. I'm going to play for you right here an interview with an MSNBC host that Kay Granger did in September 2007. Mitt Romney was was running for president and Granger was of course supporting Mitt Romney. And Mitt Romney ironically himself was really a pro abortion Republican. But, you know, he said, oh, we're going to allow states to decide. I'm going to make allow states to make abortion legal. So the MSNBC host asked Kay Granger the following question. And clearly what Mitt Romney thinks is right is to allow the states like Texas to make uh, their own law regarding abortion rights. So. If Texas, in fact, uh, had that opportunity, and Texas uh, decided that they were going to make uh, abortion illegal, as it looks like the legislature would if they had that opportunity, what should be the penalty in your mind to a woman who has an abortion? Well, you're talking to someone who doesn't have that that opinion. First of all, you don't have an opinion, what, what, but you, what, you no. You, I you said didn't. I don't. I don't agree with that. I said my opinion. I am a, a pro-choice Republican. So the uh, one thing I think that also is important is that Mitt Romney is is saying that. He has a place for a lot of people and a lot of opinions, but that is the position he is going to take. Listen to that. She actually interrupted him to say, Whoa, wait a minute, you're getting me wrong. See, the host figured this is a Texas Republican. Of course, she's pro-life. Hey, like, you know, what are you going to do if Ronnie's president? You know, how are you going to utilize this pro-life presidency? Which wouldn't have been pro-life, but, you know, let's put that aside. And she said, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're talking, talking to the wrong person. Here. I'm, I'm the pro-choice Republican. Look, we're happy Mitt Romney is in a big tent, uh, lots of people with diverse views. So she was very clear. And remember, she she was in Congress since 1997. She was already in Congress for a decade as a Republican, and she's very clear she's pro-choice. So Chris Putnam has been running against that and confronting her with it. So last night, Monday night, in Fort Worth, there was this forum, candidate's forum with the two of them, Putnam and Granger, and the moderator asked her about this. Let's let's take a listen um, right here. Uh, Congressman Granger, there's been a couple of questions that were turned in about your position. Uh, you, you said in your comments that you're pro-life. Uh, there's obviously some footage where you indicate you were not at a particular point in time. Do you want to address that and how and when that change took place? Uh, well, I can yes. Um, as I said, the last 10 years, it's a, it's a record. You can look at my record. I've been pro choice, strongly pro choice, worked on that, uh, received credits for that. Uh, I, when I came into Congress, that wasn't the situation. My position has evolved. I don't know how long that um, that was shown. I wish I was still that young because it was quite a while ago. But it has, just like President uh, Trump's position has changed. So let's listen to that. She says, I'm a pro-choice Republican. Now, look, I understand it was a gaffe, and she probably meant to say pro-life. But if you look at the totality of circumstances, what she said, it's very clear that there was no cathartic change in her view at some point. But rather, she is very muddled on the issue. And that's why I think it was more than just a Freudian slip. I think it kind of came out that way because she didn't even know how to articulate it. So she starts off by trying to say, almost deny it. Like, hey, I don't know what video you're showing me here. I don't remember it. Hey, I look I look quite young back then. I wish I looked like that today. Almost as if to say like, hey, I don't even know what you're talking about. But then she gives another defense, which which really contradicts the first thing, and says, well, you know, Trump, uh, Trump's the same way. You know, he converted. A lot of people did. Reagan also did. I mean, she didn't mention Reagan, but it's, it's true of Reagan. But but then, the thing is, if that's your defense, then you would embrace it. Like, yeah, sure, I was I was pro-choice and I realized how stupid it was, how radical the abortion movement was, Um, and now I'm solidly pro-life. You would, look, everyone knows whether it's political or religious, the most zealous people are converts. If you're a convert to the cause, you'd be shouting from the rooftops. I mean, we would know that she was a convert. Yet nobody ever saw any press release In 2009, 2011, 2015, whenever this mysterious cathartic conversion happened, and nobody has seen a difference. And look, the proof is in the pudding. You would think Kay Granger would say, look, as the Appropriations Committee Chairman, if Republicans take over the House, I will defund Planned Parenthood. I will hold the line and not allow any omnibus or CR come out of the House that does that that funds funds Planned Parenthood. Yet she was a top appropriator with Republican trifecta control for two years, and they didn't even try initially. It's not like oh they passed a good House bill, but then the Senate, the filibuster, the Democrats, even though Republicans had control, went and said look no um, we're going to pass a bad bill, and then they agreed to it. It was worse than that. They initially gave the gave the Democrats in the Senate who were in a minority what they wanted. They never passed a bill defunding Planned Parenthood. I mean, they did standalone show votes, but not the real bill that was going to be signed into law. She could have come clean on that. But no, she's going to do the same thing. And by the way, I've heard from people at the forum that she actually was saying similar things like, oh, Planned Parenthood's not even funded. She was playing that game, denying it which is a lie, of course. They're still getting, you know, it's on autopilot. They didn't increase the funding, but it's on autopilot for about a half a billion a year. So does that sound to you like a zealous pro-life person? Man, the, I am the one, the most powerful member with the purse strings, the most important job of Congress. I'm going to make sure abortion is not funded in America. Well, you know, some people change, although I don't even know when I said that. Um, I'm pro-choice. I've always been pro-choice. Well, okay, that was a gaffe. And uh yeah, let me tell you. I'm I'm really going to No. And you know what? I, I don't even think we fund it now anyway. These are the Republicans we're hoping to elect. I mean, and I'm supposed to focus on on uh the Democrat primary whether it's Sanders or Warren or Buck Gag or Biden or whatever. I mean, really? That's what I'm supposed to focus on? Imagine if you had every show host that has a much larger audience than we do here on the right focused on races like these. Not only would Chris Putnam win, but you would have many more people like Chris Putnam who you know, are somewhat personally wealthy and successful and could put in money and could mount more of a serious challenge run in many other districts. Senate and House, and you could have so so much of a better Republican uh, roster coming in after November. And you know what? If you did that, then you could pressure Trump to endorse. But guess what? Trump endorsed Kate Granger. He endorsed her. It's unbelievable. It's not even like she's been a warrior for him. Bad on the issues, but good on Trump, like Doug Collins and some of these other people. She hates the guy. Why would he endorse her? And the answer is he never would. But the minute they get a viable challenge, Trump steps in to crush that challenge. I mean, it's the ultimate defeat mechanism. How could I ignore this? This is the single most impactful thing conservative figures could do and influence. But anyway, that's the first thing the president could do. Influence primaries in Congress. And we could all do. But I want to point to another important story. So we had another Minnesota county that went ahead and um, voted to accept refugees a county. Trump won by a wide margin. Because again, most Republicans, whether they're in Congress, whether they're county officials, whether they're state officials, or like Kay Granger. By the way, Kay Granger, as a top appropriator, was responsible. Everyone's wondering, why didn't we fund ICE, deportations, um, detention beds, and the border wall when we had all three branches? Well, I present to you Kay Granger. She was in charge of writing those bills among a couple other people. And Kay Granger instead... She was concerned about separating families and kids in cages. She has a whole statement on that at the border. She she bought into that nonsense. But anyway, we have Republicans like that, support refugees, same thing. So, again, flooding our communities with crime, domestic and foreign. Bringing in clan, ancient clan warfare, Sunni-Shia warfare to our country, Ms. MS-13 from Latin America, drugs, sanctuary cities, all the nexus of all these issues, to me, is the most vital issue, set of issues. And it's really the, the, the greatest way to draw a sharp contrast and win on issues that people care about, win back suburban voters. Here's an article I want to share with you from one of our listeners um, who sent me from the Star Tribune. As Twin Cities street gangs evolve, traditional hierarchies vanish. And they go on to talk about the record homicides. Yes, record homicides. Everyone's gonna tell you, oh, crime is, is is all time low, Daniel. What are you talking about? Yeah, it was. It was when we had Reagan's policies implemented for several decades. Now that you reversed them under the banner of criminal justice reform and got Trump to support it. Well, yeah, I mean, it's going back the other way. They talk about all these gang shootouts. And then they say, the evolution, there's been an evolution in gangs. The evolution has forced law enforcement to rethink its strategies on tracking gang activity, the primary driver of gun violence in Minneapolis and St. Paul. More than half of St. Paul's record-breaking 28 gun deaths in 2019 were linked to gang-related shootings scattered throughout the city. Minneapolis had a similar rate. After dark, officers with St. Paul's gun and gang unit patrol the streets, responding to frequent shots fired, calls, and occasionally assisting the homicide squad with investiga- investigations. Quote, I've never seen it like this before, Sergeant Steve Lynch said during a recent uh, ride along with the unit. It's heartbreaking when you're driving from one shooting to the next. During the mid 90s, When police had seemingly unlimited overtime budgets to combat growing gun violence, task forces targeted gun gang leaders with federal racketeering laws. Hmm. These these are all the people sitting for long, unjust prison sentences in the federal system. As we said yesterday, this, my friends, is why the crime rate plummeted that the jailbreakers are using as a means of pushing jailbreak, and they're admitting it plummeted because of this. That stupid Super Bowl ad. Those crime-fighting tactics were successful, putting high-profile gang bosses behind bars for decades. Now, they talk about without someone to call the shots, because the leaders were in jail, long-established gangs like the vice lords and gangster disciples repeatedly fractured into smaller, unpredictable crews and were more difficult to contain. Um, what we're seeing is one people are moving from more frequently than they used to across the city said, uh, the the continent, the chief architect of the project life and anti violence program geographically, you're getting a north side guy who moves to the east side or moves to the midway. And they're linking up with people there. As a result, she said gang violence has largely morphed from ingrained rivalries over territory to interpersonal disputes, with social media playing an outsized role and fanning some of these newly formed conflicts. So teens seek out groups that can help protect them in the short term, regardless of geography. But there's one key throwaway line in this article that is so, so important. So, so important. So they talk about the rail line, the green line, light rail. Just like in New York, we're having subway violence in Minneapolis. And crime's going up. You have more graffiti going on. Social media attacks. Younger, they're getting involved younger and younger. Mm -hmm. And... It's Again, it's all being fueled by gang violence. Now, you guys are probably wondering, well, what is unique? What is unique about this part of the country? What's unique? Well, when you think of Minneapolis, what do you think of? Typically, you think of the massive Somali refugee population. Okay. Well, I'm here to tell you that even the mainstream media is now admitting there that they are a big part of the problem. This is the other side of the refugee issue, my friends. Quote, it's one line in this article from the Star Tribune, but they give away the farm. They probably didn't mean to do it. Authorities have also noticed an uptick in violence involving East African gangs from both sides of the river. This is the crux of what I've been talking about, that we don't have traditional refugees anymore where people that are 100% victims of a one-sided ethnic or religious persecution, you bring them in here and they love and appreciate America and they prosper and they're certainly very peaceful, law-abiding people. No, we're bringing in people from multifaceted tribal sectarian warfares, either in Africa or Islamic in the Middle East, and they reconstitute those tribal warfares that divide along the same clan lines they had in Mogadishu on the streets of Cedar Riverside's Riverside neighborhood in, in Minneapolis. Remember, what have we had a lot since the 90s? Tens of thousands of Somali refugees. This is the narrative that's not being pushed enough. This is what re- Trump needs to shame these Republican governors. Into understanding. And he certainly needs to stop endorsing them. That's what we're bringing in. And like I said yesterday. It's the same thing. When it comes to. The Sunni Shia stuff. We had that Iraqi arrested over the weekend in Phoenix. Sunni. Al Qaeda guy. Who is wanted in in, uh, Iraq. For killing two. Police officers in Fallujah. What in the world would we be doing around 2008 bringing in people from Fallujah? What are you thinking? How could you decipher victim and perpetrator? It's a sectarian civil war going on there. Yet, in the so called travel ban, which wasn't much of a travel ban, as I noted yesterday. They say that Iraq is taken off because we have great working relationships with with Iraq. And even though basically admitting we have no way of vetting them, but we don't want to ruin our diplomatic relations. We have our military there. So we literally go there, lose 5,000 people, destroy like 30,000 people with, with lifelong wounds, so many missing limbs. There's an article out today that the cost of the war... From defense1.com, the cost of the war was $2 trillion in Iraq for nothing. Oh, to protect our homeland? No! So we could bring in 150,000 Iraqis evenly divided between Sunnis and Shias over the last 15 years. So many security threats. We call that refugee resettlement. (laughs) whether it's the Somali clans, whether it's the Sunni Shias. This is the big lie. This is all what Trump campaigned on. But either because he supports rhinos, so his executive order allowing states to block refugees isn't working out, or because he's not really following through with the ideological vetting that he promised from from the Middle East and these places, we're not winning. And again, the criterion that they used that they used in that order forecloses their ability to do ideological vetting. Folks, I, I just don't want to go backwards here. As I said yesterday, I could always accept if we're going forwards, maybe at a slower pace than I'd want to go. But what I'm scared about is what he's done with these orders, and again, no one else is going to tell you this, is that they made a very narrow criterion for shutting off visas. Has to be that they don't share certain data with us. And then, even the, and then there's even six or so countries that don't, but they, you know, like Afghanistan and Iraq, they say, oh, well, what are we, what are we going to do about that, basically? But what that does is it forecloses basically. Well, what does that say for a country like Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Uzbekistan? You know, they, they banned Kyrgyzstan, and they said, well, there's you know there's some issues with with uh with Kyrgyzstan. What was the issue? So you know, obviously there was a certain amount of data problems they had with them. They mentioned that, but then they also mentioned there that Kyrgyzstan has a terrorist threat. You know, there's also concern that they're going to bring in terrorists because there is some sort of presence of terrorism in Kyrgyzstan. Now, a lot of you are probably laughing because, well, yeah, Kyrgyzstan, but that's kind of random. There's a presence of terrorism in in like 50 of these countries. And we bring in a lot more people from there. We bring in only 838 from Kyrgyzstan. We bring in like 28 from Tanzania. We're at 12, Well, 28 on diversity visas. Those were the only visas that were cut off. We actually bring in more from there that aren't cut off. Again, you know, 13,000 from Afghanistan, 14,000 from Iraq every year. You know, 16,000 from Bangladesh, 15,000 at least from Pakistan, 10,000 from Egypt, just to name a few. Thirty, forty thousand 40,000 foreign students from Saudi Arabia. Those are the big ones. We didn't even get to China, which, by the way, doesn't share data with us, which I don't, I don't understand how they're not on the list. But we bring in 360,000 foreign students and 80,000 immigrant visas we give out to Chinese nationals a year. You know... I, I don't get it. But remember, the president said, he warned in, um. this was August 15, 2016, his famous speech in Ohio, where he called for extreme vetting. A Trump administration will establish a clear principle that will govern all decisions pertaining to immigration. We should only admit into the country those who share our values and respect our people. And he talked about the recent terror attacks that involved immigrants or the children of immigrants. And he made it clear that this wasn't only about, quote, screening out all members or sympathizers of terrorist groups, but also, quote, screen out any who have hostile attitudes towards our country or its principles, or who believe that Sharia law should supplant American law. I mean, I'm just saying you read what this report does, this proclamation, and it really forecloses on that. He talked about how we admit about 100,000 permanent immigrants from the Middle East every year. Beyond that, we admit hundreds of thousands of temporary workers and visitors from the same regions. If we don't control the numbers, we can't perform adequate screenings. That was his point. His point was, look, we could talk about what sort of criterion, but the numbers got to come down. As I noted, this order was designed to avoid the numbers. It was to pick the lowest numbers. And, And you see, like, Nancy Pelosi is saying, oh, you're barring hundreds of millions of people from c- coming here, which, of course, isn't true. And Chad Wolf, the acting DHS secretary, is, oh, you're lying. What are you talking about? It's so few people. But, well, I mean, that's how you win an argument with Democrats. How about you put it on them? You're bringing in people. What about this guy from Iraq that we didn't vet? Are you going to have that on your head, Nancy Pelosi? That's how you talk to them. You don't get all defensive and basically agree to their premise. Oh, no, no, it's only a handful of people. But th- th- that defeats the whole point. And again, as I say, China is a separate story. You know, It's not a matter of Islamic you know, Sharia ideology. It's a matter of counterintelligence, spying, espionage, um, trade secret, theft, things like that. There's no way we have enough resources to vet that many people. I mean, that was already proven by a congressional report recently. So that's what concerns me on that front. Safety, security of our communities. I mean, this is all what Trump needs to campaign on. Then we got to get back to sanctuary cities. And again, this is a matter of Trump calling in favors. Not just driving federal legislation, but state legislation too. Don't tell me, oh, Trump's not president of, you know, state government. Yeah, but he's the most respected Republican by far. And nobody wants to be caught on the other side of him if they're a Republican. So, I mean, he has a great opportunity to use that bully pulpit and threaten endorsements. And what am I driving at? I'm driving at Tennessee's Governor Bill Lee. (laughs) So there's a story out of a local Fox 17 affiliate in Nashville. MS-13 continues to gain power in Middle Tennessee. So we all know about MS-13 in California. We know about it in Maryland, Long Island, places like that. Middle Tennessee? Well, what happened there? So they did an interview with the U.S. Attorney Don Cochran from that area, um, and he talks about how it's a growing problem and it hurts the Hispanic population. Um, anywhere there's a large Hispanic population, there's a recruiting hotbed for MS-13, Well, gee, how did we get there? Why did it happen? So this article is obviously very, um, I was speaking to a friend of mine who works in ICE, and we were talking about the just journalistic malpractice here. They, They act as if this was some sort of a natural disaster. It came out of nowhere in Nashville. Well, no, it didn't. It came because guess where... MS-13 has come from the last number of years, the UACs, the unaccompanied teens coming over the border that we erroneously again resettle as refugees. And guess what? Davidson County has taken in a lot of them. That's how you get them in on the front end. How do you keep them and attract them through sanctuary cities? It's, I mean, I've written about it. There have been very high-profile cases where they collect mobs and gather around someone hiding in a car to block ICE from deporting. Um, All the state officials, all the county officials are are bad. I have heard, and I, I have it directly from ICE, I could say this on the record, that Davidson County, which is where Nashville is, does not cooperate at all, meaning it is every bit as severe of a sanctuary as Los Angeles, as New York City. They will not even cooperate for homicide much less anything else. And, and here's the thing. The, the way you get gang activity is typically you don't catch a gang member on murder as the first thing. It's the drugs. And they talk about here the drug trafficking that, that goes along with it. You have drugs and gangs in a place like Nashville, all because of the policies with UACs that we refuse to fix at the border and because of sanctuary cities. Things that they could fix right now through executive policies. Or certainly if you had a Republican Congress with noteworthy Republicans worth more than a bucket of spit, then, yeah, we could do this. This is the type of stuff he needs to speak about at the State of the Union address. They harbor all these people. That is why you have it. You look at the Deep South and they all cooperate. right? There's no place. There's one blot on that in Nashville. It's glaring and it's a, it's, it's a sanctuary. Now, So number one is why, so they interview this U.S. attorney. But you're the federal prosecutor. Why aren't you prosecuting them for 1324 violations? That's number one. So why is this administration getting tougher on that? Sanctuary cities is the top issue. Number two. The last time I checked, there's a Republican governor in Tennessee. Okay, this is not... New York, we're like, oh, like, what are you going to do? You know, it's bad. So, again, we should do stuff on a federal level. But here, we could even do it on a state level. The last time I checked, there is a Republican governor. The last time I checked, listen to this. Republicans have a 28 to 5 majority in the Senate there. 28 to 5 and 73 to 26 in the house and they have a governor why do they not have texas's law that makes it illegal to be a sanctuary i i just don't understand it years into this how does this not happen but no, Bill Lee is too busy letting out drug traffickers because, as he said, we can't open up the jails too, you know, quickly enough. And, and this, is, this is the irony. I, I want you to guys to listen to this because this is a very important, deep point. I noted a similar thing recently. Franklin County, Ohio, that's, that's Columbus. That area is a huge sanctuary in Ohio. Now, again, Ohio also. Republicans have the trifecta of control. But notice how, notice how it's interesting. Whenever you have a red rural part of California or New York or, you know, a red part of a blue state, they're like, look, our hands are tied. There's nothing we can do. The state of sanctuary policies will be locked up. But then when it's the other way around, when it's a blue county in a red state, oh, there's is a sanctuary. There's nothing we can do. <laughs> right? I mean, it's the same thing. Federal, state, county, state, state, county. Courts, executive, legislative, whatever it is, the Democrats win every time. It's not a matter of, oh, it's any; it's more oriented towards this power or that power. It's because Democrats fight for their stuff. Republicans are a perfidious Orwellian party. I mean, again, like everyone's like, oh, oh, Republicans, Daniel, the election, the Democrats. I, look, I get it. Believe me, I, I, I don't want Bernie to win. I want Trump to win. But I want to help him. And look, you're not going to get anywhere close to what you have in Tennessee. Republican governor, statewide officials, Republican, attorney general, okay? A 28 to 5 majority in the Senate, a 73 to 26 majority in the House. And we have nothing but jailbreak, accepting refugees on a state level to bring in more of this garbage. And sanctuary... In in Nashville, and now you have budding drugs and MS-13 in Heartland, Tennessee. That is Republican governance when you have a phony, distracted, loser, click conservative movement. I'm sorry, the truth hurts, but we're gonna say it. I didn't even get to the cartels and the meth trafficking now. i will have to talk about that a different day. But this is the point. This is the leadership the president needs to, uh kick off at the State of the Union and and be relentlessly focused on it and we all need to find the ways to actually implement this because yeah you're right Bernie is a radical the Democrats are crazy they are incompetent but all the more so you should be able to defeat them and provide a bold contrast folks after listening to this show I'm sure you're gonna notice that well there's really no show quite like it, and that's why I need you to go to iTunes. Click on the Conservative Review Podcast. Leave us a five-star rating. This is the way to grow the audience, Let get the truth out. Send me your comments, questions, and concerns to at blazemedia.com. Tweet me at rmconservative. Until tomorrow, we'll have our reaction to State of the Union. God bless you all, and thank you for listening.